This morning we're continuing our series in biblical parenting, and our text comes from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 10, verses 16 and 17. These are the words of God. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child, and your princes feast in the morning. Blessed are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobles, and your princes feast at the proper time, for strength and not for drunkenness. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray, open your word to us today. Show us your glory and the truth that is here. Let it wash over us. And let us see, O Lord God, how Solomon is really talking to us about parenting and about the fruit that we should see in the children you have given to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we began our biblical parenting series by looking at the glory of biblical parenting. We looked at the fact that God did not have to do it this way. He did not have to include us in the process of building mankind, of building his bride, the church, and parenting his children. God could have made us like the angels, all at once and fully developed. No marriage, no children, no parenting. But instead, God went way out of his way to put us right in the middle of it all, and all for our sake, so that we have the privilege and glory of imitating the love of Christ in the church in marriage, and of imitating the parental love of God the Father in bringing us up as his children and the children he has created through us and entrusted to us. This has nothing to do with necessity. This is sheer gift and glory. So keep that in mind as we go forward this morning into the next aspect of biblical parenting. And I want to stay at the big picture level because parenting is a big project. It's like building a house. In fact, Solomon, who penned our text in Ecclesiastes, also penned Psalm 127, in which he talks about building houses and raising children, because they are so much alike. And because they are so much alike, we should approach them in much the same way. If we were contracted to build a house... What's the first thing we are going to do? Look at the blueprint, the master plan. And what's the first thing we want to know? What's the goal? What's this house supposed to be when it's finished? What's the floor plan? Is it multiple stories? What's the quality of this home? Is this a bare-bones starter home? Is it a Hollywood show home all blinged out surface and show? Or is this just a really quality custom home? And with God's children, you realize they're not supposed to be like the blinged out Hollywood show home, all surface and show, but they are supposed to be quality throughout. Quality design quality materials, quality craftsmanship, so that the closer you look, the more beauty 
you see because it's quality throughout. The second thing we want to know is what's the deadline? When does this house have to be finished? Then based on the goal that we're after and and what the deadline is, we're going to start at the end of the project and then we're going to plan this project by backing up from the end and scheduling out the different construction phases. The finishing phase is the last phase. That's the beautification phase. Lights, trim, molding, colors, cabinets, appliances, all the things that make you want to be in that house because it's beautiful. Prior to that, you have the framing phase that's building on the foundation with the walls and the roof. And prior to that, you have the beginning phase, which is the foundation phase, preparing the ground, pouring the concrete on which everything is going to stand. Now, these same phases apply to raising a child unto the Lord. Last, we have the finishing phase. That's roughly the teenage years, where the wisdom of living life beautifully as God intended is the focus. That's the primary focus. Prior to that is the framing phase. That's roughly the elementary years where we build the walls of Christian knowledge and character, honesty, integrity, responsibility, reliability. We build those on top of the foundation. And prior to that is the initial phase, the foundation phase, That's roughly the toddler and preschool years. That's where we're pouring the concrete of faith, respect, and obedience on which the whole house is going to stand. Now, of course, these phases are not like airtight containers because all throughout the construction process, even in the elementary years and the teenage years, we're always going to be reinforcing the foundation of faith, respect, and obedience. And we're always going to be strengthening the walls of Christian knowledge and character, even as we're in the finishing phase of adding the beauty of wisdom. And if you think about it, That's the way we are in our own personal lives as we walk with the Lord as his sons and daughters. Even if our children are all grown, even if we have grandchildren in our own lives and our time in God's word, our time in prayer and so forth, we're always reinforcing the foundations of faith, respect and obedience, aren't we? We never get beyond that, do we? We're always strengthening the walls of Christian knowledge and character. And we're always seeking to add the beauty of wisdom. So these phases are not airtight containers. And the, and the other thing is these ages that I mentioned, they're not airtight either. It's not like you can't start building the walls of Christian character until a tile turns five or six. The bottom line is, as soon as you have an adequate foundation of faith, respect, and obedience, you can start building the walls of Christian character, honesty, responsibility, trustworthiness, and so forth. And it's not like you cannot introduce any aspect of wisdom until a child's 13th birthday. 
The bottom line is, as soon as you have an adequate foundation, faith, respect, and obedience, and adequate walls of Christian character, you can start adding elements of wisdom. So these phases are not airtight containers, but they are essential building blocks. You're not going to be able to build strong walls or add beautiful wisdom if you do not have the solid foundation and so forth. So let's turn then to the end game. Let's start at the end. Let's start with the goal of biblical parenting. That's really what Solomon is talking about in our text, even though it might not seem like it at first, because Solomon is talking about kings and princes, and what does that have to do with us and our children? But you have to remember that the Bible speaks of us as God's children and heirs. Romans 8:16. We are children of God and of children then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If we are children and heirs of God, that makes us children and heirs of the king, which makes us princes and princesses. And I don't mean that in a little child storybook fashion. I mean, seriously, we are nobles. That's the way the Bible presents us. You can see this, for example, in 1 Corinthians. Now, the Corinthian church was a church that had a lot of problems. It was a church that had a lot of trouble with pride and conceit and therefore had problems with cliques. And they were always looking for for rock star uh, style preachers and leaders and stuff like that. They, they were always trying to lift themselves by somebody else's, some rock star's bootstraps. And so they had all kinds of problems. It's interesting the way that Paul went about dealing with their problems and what a lot of his approach boiled down to was, do you not understand that you are nobles? Now, if you have a congregation with a pride problem, it would seem to be a mistake to start telling them that they are nobility. That would seem to be the opposite of what you should do. But that's exactly what Paul does, because what he's trying to show them is their concept of being noble, of being important, of being mature, of growing in glory is not true. It's not biblical, because pride and conceit and cliquishness and all of those kind of things are the fruit. What he's trying to get them to see is you are biblical nobles. You are nobles of the true king. And he is the one who defines nobility. Jesus Christ is the perfect example of true nobility. And so Paul keeps telling them, you are nobles. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 8. You have reigned as kings without us, without us apostles. In other words, your nobility, your royalty, your status in Christ does not depend upon us as apostles. We are your servants in the Lord. And then he says, indeed, I wish you did reign, that we also might reign in you. So as apostles, we are going to, we're going to, as it were, live through you in, in the same way that a parent in a healthy way or a grandparent would 
live in their children and grandchildren. There's a healthy way to do that, and there's an unhealthy way to do that. What Paul here is saying is that by your status in Jesus Christ, objectively, you are kings, you are reigning, but in another sense, you're not reigning because you don't understand what true nobility is. And so Paul keeps telling them things like chapter 6. Do you not know that saints will judge the world? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? He keeps telling them you are nobles. But you have to understand what true nobility is. Jesus is the perfect example. Philippians 2. Have this attitude in yourself which was also in Christ Jesus. I'm sure you know this passage. If you wanted to boil this whole passage down to a phrase, it would be understand and become truly noble. Jesus existed in the form of God, but he did not regard his equality with God. He did not regard his divinity, his godness, as some sort of a reason or impediment for the incarnation. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He emptied himself of his privileges. He did not empty himself of his divinity. He took the form of a bondservant being made in the likeness of men. And he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him. Because the Father can see in his only begotten Son, he gets it. He understands true nobility. And so God exalts him and makes him the king of kings. So Solomon in our text is using nobles, kings, and princes to show us what it looks like when the goal of biblical parenting is achieved. There's a certain kind of nobility that comes about in the children whom God has given us. He also shows us what it looks like when the goal is not achieved. Solomon starts out with the negative example. In other words, this is what it looks like when the goal is not achieved. He uses the example of a grown king who is still a child. Verse 16, woe to you, old land, when your king is a child. Now here he's not talking about that their king is literally a child. He's talking about a grown man who is still a child within. An example in the Bible would be King Saul. Physically, he was the ideal king. He was a head taller than anyone else. When you saw Saul, he looked like a king. When you saw him, you wanted to follow him, but he was a little child within. And so when he got into office, he showed himself to be like a child, insecure, petty, selfish, immature in faith, obedience, character, and wisdom. Now, if you want to look at a counterexample, a good example of a young person, a young man who already gets it, and is showing the right kind of nobility. Look at Saul's son, Jonathan. He's a whole generation younger, and yet far more mature in all those things that Saul lacked. And for that matter, so was Jonathan's best friend, David. 
whom God chose as king to replace Saul. Jonathan and David, even as young men, were much more mature than Saul in faith, obedience, character, and wisdom. And the history books show us the same contrast. Think of Henry VIII, King of England, who had a series of six wives because they would not give him a son. And he wanted a son. Right now. Now what does that seem like? A little child. That's childish. He was willful. He was petulant. He was self-indulgent. He started the Church of England declaring himself the head of the church because the Pope would not give him an annulment of his first marriage to his first wife, Catherine of Aragon. That's Henry VIII. That's a grown man who is still a child and he's sitting on the throne. That's a problem. For a very young king who was mature in faith, obedience, character, and wisdom, look at Alfred the Great, who never sought the throne, but was thrust into office when his older brother was killed in battle. He was thrust into office as a young man. His faith, obedience, character, and wisdom at such a young age are why he is the only English king to be called the Great. So coming back to our text in Ecclesiastes, Solomon uses a particular activity, a one single activity, to highlight the difference between folly and weakness and childishness on the one hand, and wisdom, strength, and maturity on the other. And that one activity is feasting. And he's showing us that feasting alone by itself doesn't really tell you anything. When it is done, why it is done, how it is done, from what is it done, unto what is it done, all of those things tell you whether feasting is wise or foolish, whether it's strength or weakness, whether it is maturity or childish. Even wisdom itself is pictured as a feast. Proverbs 9, verse 2, Wisdom has slaughtered her meat. She has mixed her wine. She has furnished her table. Wisdom says, Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. But what makes wisdom's feast a worthy feast is what is at the bottom of it. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Young nobles who feast and get drunk in the morning because they can, because they're young and they're nobles, what's the result going to be when people see this? If that's all they see, feasting in the morning to get drunk, people are going to look upon them with contempt and disdain. And if they follow them at all, it will be with resentment because their feasting indicates a lack of faith, a lack of Christian knowledge and character, a lack of wisdom. It shows that they don't get it. They're fully grown physically. Their minds are developed and yet they're little children. They want what they want. And they don't get it. 
And so that one activity, if that's all you saw about them, it would raise doubts in your mind about every single thing in their life. When you see them feasting in the morning to get drunk, do you have confidence in their relationship with God? No. Do you have confidence about their biblical knowledge and their Christian character? No. Do you have confidence, these young men, about the kind of woman that they would pursue or the kind of husband they would make or the kind of father they would make? No. Do you have confidence about how they would conduct themselves in office, about whether they would see themselves as there to serve the people God had placed them over or whether they're going to see themselves as there to be served And the people are there for them. You don't have confidence in any of those areas because of what you've seen with this feasting. You see the the characteristics of their feasting. This is the kind of thing that causes the Lord to say to Israel in Amos chapter 5 verse 21, I hate, I despise your feast days. The feast days that God himself commanded. Because they're doing them for all the wrong reasons in all the wrong way. There is a feasting that is the product of weakness and results in more weakness. And there is a feasting that is the product of strength and results in more strength. And this is what the good young nobles understood. So contrast the nobles who feast at the proper time for strength. What does that feasting look like? Well, we get a picture of it in Nehemiah chapter 8. Verse 10, where Nehemiah, who was the governor, tells the people they've been at a worship service and they've had sadness come upon them because they've become aware of all the ways in which they have fallen short and their forefathers have fallen short. And this is what Nehemiah says to them. Go your way. Eat the fat. Drink the sweet, in other words, feast. Send portions for those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow. Regardless of all the ways we have fallen short and our forefathers have fallen short, there is a greater reality, and that reality is what God has done in Christ. That is the governing reality. That's what he's telling them. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, to send portions and rejoice greatly. Why? Because they understood the words that were declared to them. They got it. Now, when you have young nobles... When you have one group who are feasting and getting drunk in the morning, and you have another group on their own, not because their parents are standing over them, on their own, they're not participating in that kind of feasting because they understand that's from weakness leading to weakness. Instead, they feast at the proper time, like we read about in Nehemiah 8. They feast at the proper time, out of strength unto strength. And they're doing it on their own because they get it. That kind of feasting indicates faith, character, wisdom. And it assures us about every single area of their lives. 
That second group of young nobles who feast on their own at the right time for the right reason, are you worried about their relationship with God? Are you worried about their understanding and submission to God's word? Are you worried about what kind of a woman they will pursue? What kind of husband they will make? What kind of father they will make? Are you worried about what kind of leader they will make? No, you're not. Because the way they conduct themselves on their own initiative in this one area assures you about every area across the board. They get it. They get the fact that all of life is gift and glory from the hand of God. They get the fact that God has called us to know Him and to walk with Him. He didn't save us to go stand in the corner. Go stand in the corner, don't make any noise, don't do anything. No, God saves us and says, right here. Right here beside me. You walk with me. God has called us to participate in his work. To participate in his warfare in his kingdom. To reflect his character. To share in his joy and glory. These second group of young people, they get that. And so all of life is gift and glory to them. It's not a matter of, I want what I want. That's where the first group is. That's being like a little child. The second group is, it's all gift and glory. And I'm taking up this privilege to walk with the Lord and reflect His ways. Now that second group, what we see in that second group of nobles, that is the goal of biblical parenting. That's what we're after. That's what we're aspiring to. That's what we're praying for. And that's what we want for our children. Nothing less. So we've looked at the goal, the end game of biblical parenting, where we want to be in the end. What's the deadline? At what point do we want our children to be showing this kind of affirmative evidence that they get it? Well, certainly by adulthood. Now, in ancient Israel, adulthood formally for males was at age 20. That was the age at which um, young men were expected to begin serving in the army, to die for their people, to die for their families. But you certainly would like to see it earlier than that. You don't want to see, they have no shown, no evidence of this And they're almost 20, and then suddenly on their 20th birthday, there's going to be a magical transformation. No, you want to see this kind of affirmative evidence prior to that. As early as possible, that's the answer, as early as possible, but certainly by the time that they are exercising substantial independence and are making decisions that can have lasting consequences for themselves and others. You can see these young nobles have substantial independence. They're, they're feasting and getting drunk in the morning. That's substantial independence. That's making decisions that will have long-term consequences for them and others. So certainly prior to this time. For us, that would certainly mean by the time that a child is going to be going off to college, if not before, 
They're in a position at that point where they can do things, they can make decisions that are going to have lasting consequences for themselves and others. And so certainly before that time. So we've looked at the goal and the deadline. Let's back up from that and ask, what does the last stage look like? That's the finishing stage, the wisdom stage. What the finishing stage, the wisdom stage, the beautification stage, what it looks like is the book of Proverbs. Especially the first nine chapters, which are Solomon's introduction to the book, and it consists of a series of ongoing, long-term conversations Solomon the king is having with his own teenage son concerning all the issues and areas of life. Money, power, popularity, friends, romance, sex, work, fun, luxuries, you name it. They discuss it all at length. And chapter 31 is the queen mother talking to her teenage son, about the kind of man he ought to be and the kind of woman he ought to pursue. Now, you see throughout the the book of Proverbs, they're always reinforcing the foundation of faith, respect, and obedience. Proverbs 1, verse 8, My son, hear the instruction of your father, and do not forsake the law of your mother, for they will be a graceful ornament, a wreath, a crown on your head. Chapter 3, verse 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart. This is foundational stuff. Lean not on your own understanding. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord, respect the Lord, and depart from evil. They're always strengthening the walls of Christian knowledge and character. Proverbs six sixteen. there are six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look. You don't even have to do a proud deed. Just a proud look. The Lord hates it. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises evil plans. Feet that are swift in running to evil. A false witness who speaks lies. And one who sows discord among brethren. These are the walls of Christian character. And at the same time, the main purpose of this phase, this teenage phase, is adding the beauty of wisdom and avoiding the ugliness of folly. The whole meaning of the Hebrew word for wisdom relates to beauty. The basic meaning of the word wisdom is artistry. Biblical wisdom is turning life into an art form as God intended. It's the art and skill of living life beautifully the way God intended so that when people look at the whole of your life, they say, that was a beautiful life. They live the way God intended. So the finishing stage here we can see from Proverbs presupposes three things. It assumes three things to already be true. Number one, it presupposes that by the time your child is a teenager, if not before, they are what the Bible calls simple, but they are not what the Bible calls a fool. 
They are what the Bible calls simple. Simple in the Bible just means that they are young and unsophisticated in wisdom, prudence, and discretion. A fool is something different. A fool in the Bible means someone who is rebellious and unteachable. Proverbs 1, verse 7. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. That's a fool. So the whole finishing stage presupposes that our teenagers, if not before, are not fools. They are young people of faith, and they are teachable, and they want to learn wisdom. Verse 4 talks about the simple. It says, the Proverbs of Solomon are to give prudence to the simple, to the young man, knowledge and discretion. So that's the first assumption that by the teenage years, our children, our young people are simple, but they are not fools. Second, it presupposes that by the time your child is a teenager, if not before, all of the conversations you see in the book of Proverbs have begun to take place between you and your teen. All of those conversations have begun to take place. That's how Solomon imparted wisdom to his son. That's how the queen mother imparted wisdom to her son. That's how you do it with your children. Years of running deep conversations day by day on everything about life. The third thing that is three, uh, presupposed is that you have a certain relationship with your child, with your young person, your teen at that age. You have a relationship with them, a connection with them that involves peace, respect, and a desire to converse and learn. In short, it presupposes the complete opposite of what is considered normal today in modern American society. What is considered normal today between parents and teens? Sullenness, withdrawal, resentment, rebellion, arguments, yelling. There are no conversations. Nothing is being learned. That is assumed to be normal. In our modern American society, that is not assumed to be normal in the Bible. In fact, the Bible assumes that you're going to have a very different relationship with your teen by those years. The process of Proverbs, the learning of wisdom, the beautification of life cannot occur in an environment that does not involve this kind of relationship and that kind of reality in the young person's. Proverbs 29.9 says that when a wise man tries to talk something out with a fool, the fool either rages or laughs, mocks, and there is no rest. There is no peace. That's the status of the typical modern American home. But what is normal in unbelieving homes should not be normal in Christian homes. Hebrews 12 verse 11 says that those who have been trained according to the Lord's discipline experience the fruit of peaceful righteousness in their life. That is the biblical expectation 
That is what you should be seeing in your teenagers, if not before the teenage years. You see, we assume in modern America that the teenage years are going to be horrible. The biblical assumption is the teenage years are the fun years. That's when you start reaping the benefit of all the hard work you did at the foundation stage to make sure that foundation was strong and firm and level and square. So you're not dealing with foundation problems as you go forward. If you have foundation problems, the walls aren't going to be straight. The corners aren't going to be square. You're going to have cracks coming up through the walls. You're going to constantly be running back to try to patch up and deal with foundation issues and issues in the framing. So you can't really devote yourself to the beautification, the the introduction of decor and beauty to the house. The biblical expectation is, is by the teen years, if not before, you're reaping the benefits and the blessings. You're, you're drawing out the dividends of the hard work that you put in biblically, imitating God in the foundation phase and in the, the, the wall building phase, the Christian character phase. You're now reaping the benefits of that so that while they're still in your home, you can see that they get it. You can see they want they, they see that life is gift and glory. They want to walk with the Lord. They want to live life with beauty and artistry. They want to experience life that way. You can already see evidence that when they have the opportunity to go with a bunch of young people and feast and get drunk in the morning, their response is not going to be okay, nor is their response going to be, oh, I don't know, I'm afraid my parents will find out. Their response is to laugh and say, why would I do that? Why would I do that? That's childish. That's weak. That's weak sauce. I want strength. I want true joy. And you can see that already on their own, you see the fruit of that. Those are the fun years. Those are the fun years. That's the way it's meant to be. So, as we conclude this morning, I want to bring up what we always hear from Christian parents who have raised children all the way up. What do we always hear from them? What do they always say? They grew up so fast. You never hear, oh, it took so long. You always hear, they grew up so fast. By God's design, our children grow up ready or not. He has built in a maturity clock within them. Physically, they're going to grow up ready or not. Mental capacity, they're going to grow up ready or not, desiring the kind of independence to show wisdom, hopefully, but also to show folly, to make decisions, adult-level decisions on their own, that's going to come about ready or not. The house goes up on schedule. Some sort of foundation is going to be laid, but it won't necessarily be a good one. Some sort of walls are going to go up, 
but they're not necessarily going to be strong ones. Some sort of decor is going to be added, but it won't necessarily be beautiful. It might be really ugly. And parents, if we were building a literal house, what would our takeaway be? Our takeaway would be, we've got to get on this right away. We got to get on this now. We can't afford to waste the little years. Those are foundational years. Those are critical years. We've got to put in that hard work at the foundation stage and in the Christian character stage. We can't cut any corners. So parents, I want to, I want to challenge you, but I want to encourage you too. What a privilege this is. You thought about that? What a sheer privilege this is to get to imitate God, the perfect father, and bring up the children he has made and entrusted to you. This is our opportunity to imitate God, the perfect parent, and to become like him along the way while bringing our children in our footsteps. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.